Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Exodus. We are in chapters 11 and 12 this evening. I'm just going to do a quick brushstroke over chapter 11 to then get into chapter 12. Really, tonight, my friends, this evening is about exploring what the Passover is all about, a real high point not only to the book of Exodus, but really, I would argue, to the whole to the whole Old Testament, if not the Bible itself. So, that being said, with the time allotted uh, to me this evening, <laughs> to me every evening, sometimes it, it doesn't seem like it's long enough, I do want to jump right in. As I just noted, in chapter 11 of the book of Exodus, we have a real brief chapter that reads really as a warning to the final plague, which of course is the slaying of all firstborn sons of Egypt at the stroke of midnight. And in chapter 12, what we have then, of course, is the Passover institution and the plague itself. Chapter 12, verse 23, we read, For the Lord will pass through to slay the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to slay you. Okay? So, as we take a bird's eye view to chapter 12 of the book of Exodus, it really does, as I had just hinted at, emerge as the centerpiece to not only the book of Exodus, and to not only the Old Testament, but to the whole of the Bible. And when we look at this centerpiece, It's just not about these key elements of liberation, but also this ritual prescription, this ritual prescription, which will also be a focus of our discussion tonight and really, I could say, beyond. All right, so the Great Exodus event. Yes, it is about Passover and the spiritual freedom that accompanies it, but it is also about redemption. Recall, it was just not all the firstborn sons of Egypt who were going to die. There was a reason why I read verse 23. (laughs) What does God say to the Israelites? If you would like to save your firstborn son, you have to pay a ransom, the blood of the lamb. God, my friends, is going to redeem Israel. Remember what we read back in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 7. Therefore, say to the Israelites, as God speaking to Moses, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will, catch this, redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So, yeah, on one hand, God redeemed Israel, saved Israel from the yoke of the Egyptians. Certainly, Moses, with his outstretched arm, splits the waters. 
But this, of course, my friends, is going to be a prototype, a prefiguration in anticipation of a much more greater outstretching of arms. This evening, we are going to off and on focus in on this word typology. Typology is the study of types, how a people, places, things prefigure Christ and what he came to establish in the church. Uh, and certainly, when you get into any kind of study on the Passover, with the emphasis on Christ as the Passover lamb, you might anticipate that there is going to be a lot of typology, a lot of types, a lot of moments in the Old Testament, and in particular Exodus 12, that will have us anticipating Christ. So many of us are familiar with the story of Christ, and many of us are familiar with the story that surrounds Christ as the unblemished Passover lamb. And so when we get into Exodus 12, you're going to hear John 6, John 19, and those chapters that speak to Christ as the unblemished lamb. And already, in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 7, we hear it, right? God promises Moses that he will redeem Israel with his outstretched hand. Okay, so in order to be saved then, as Exodus 12 would prescribe, you need to follow through on four steps. And, and here, while offering up my own reflections into the subject matter, this is more or less a thumbnail sketch of what uh, Dr. Petrie does in chapter 3 of his book on the Jewish roots of the Eucharist. And let me just highly, highly recommend that book. In fact, if you're serious about Exodus 12 and you're serious about understanding what I'm talking about tonight, you would read Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, Unlocking the Secrets of the Last Supper. In that book, Dr. Brant Petrie gets into what we are talking about tonight. All right, so in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, we read that the first step in the Passover sacrifice was what but to choose an unblemished male lamb who was one years old. Incidentally, the age of a lamb that was at its prime was what but one. Hmm? You know, we say today that, oh, you were in the prime of your life roughly from the ages of 27 to 35, whatever that means. Well, it might mean something because I would venture to guess that as Jesus died at the age of 33, he was at the prime of his life. And what might be our lesson here, my friends? So often, uh, the tendency is to focus on self at the prime of our life, making sure we are working out and, and eating right and, and maximizing our physical potential. And what does Jesus say? You want to maximize the potential of who you are Give yourself totally and entirely, and let that be the signature to how you might think about the prime of your life, huh? Maybe in this sense, we could say the whole of our lives can be prime, if you will. I think there's a hidden message here, that Jesus was 33, in the prime of his life, he is an unblemished male lamb, right, at the prime of his life. All right, how about... Exodus chapter 12, verse 6. There we read of the second step to sacrifice the lamb without breaking a bone. You want to be sure, right, not to mar its perfection. And the way you did this was by slitting its throat. 
My friends, the slaughter of the Passover lamb was always a bloody mess. This is why the Levitical priest would wear a breastplate, a very large breastplate. The plate protected the priest from being covered in blood. What does this sound like? But Christ himself on the cross, a bloody mess, as the unblemished, unbroken lamb. All right, in the third step of the Passover ritual, as we read it in Exodus chapter 12, verse 7, the step of spreading the blood of the lamb. In many ways, we can say that this was the outward sign of the great Passover covenant moment, right? Blood stains, and consequently, the angel of death would know to pass over. Essentially, it was then that you were delivered from death by way of the blood of the lamb. And catch that. You were delivered from death by way of the blood of the lamb. How significant is that? Of course, as many of us know, it was in this step we have the appearance of the hyssop branch that was used to touch the lintel and the doorposts. Was not hyssop used in the events of John 19. And so it is in the fourth and final step as we read of it in Exodus chapter 12, verse 8. The all-important step of eating the roasted flesh of the lamb. So the firstborn was not saved until you ate the flesh of the lamb. Interestingly here, my friends, there is a point that is overlooked by many. While it is not recorded in the book of Exodus, but recorded in the Mishnah, the Mishnah was an extensive collection of the traditions of the Jewish rabbis that address both legal and liturgical matters. So as the Mishnah recorded, the fourth step included the boy asking the father, what is the meaning of this night? In other words, what does all of this mean, Dad? Why are we doing this? You see, it is never enough just to do it, but to ask the deeper question. So to then enter into the deeper meaning of why you were doing what you were doing. And certainly, this is before us, as we ourselves eat the flesh of the Lamb. We are made to ask the question, what is the meaning of this? So in the end, we are to see that Passover was both a sacrifice and a meal. And this is what Christ himself fulfills and transforms as the new Passover sacrifice, a sacrifice that is to be eaten during a meal. Now, I've mentioned the Gospel of John. I now want to turn our attention to the Gospel of John. As John records from the outset of his ministry, Christ is identified as what but the Lamb of God. We read in John chapter 1, verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not King of Kings or Prince of Peace, but Lamb of God. By using this title, John only draws our attention to the sacrificial dimension, to Christ's mission as the Lamb of God who would be slain at the altar of the cross, but that this would have all the context of the Passover prescription spoken of where but Exodus 12. Also, we read in Peter's first epistle, chapter 1, verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Indeed, my friends, he was the unblemished lamb 
without imperfection, whose bones were not broken. For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. We read, not a bone of him shall be broken. And here, maybe we should interject something else. Christ as the lamb to be slaughtered takes on a whole other dimension when you consider something that I believe to be quintessential. And that is how we might understand the crucifixion of the Passover lambs during the days of Christ. And here I'm turning to uh, Brandt's work that I mentioned in the opening. Brandt reflects into the crucifixion of the Passover lambs during the time of Christ. So this is Brandt. As the Israeli scholar Joseph Taboria has shown, according to the Mishnah, at the time when the temple still stood, after the sacrifice of the lamb, the Jews would drive thin, smooth staves of wood through the shoulders of the lamb in order to hang it and skin it. In addition to the first rod, they would also thrust a skewer of pomegranate wood through the Passover lamb from its mouth to its buttocks. As Tabori concludes, an examination of the rabbinic evidence seems to show that in Jerusalem, the Jewish Paschal lamb was offered in a manner which resembled a crucifixion. Brandt goes on, this conclusion is supported by the writings of St. Justin Martyr, a Christian living in the mid-2nd century. In his dialogue with a Jewish rabbi named Trifo, Justin states, For the lamb which is roasted is roasted and dressed up in the form of a cross. For one spit is transfixed right through from the lower parts up to the head and one across the back to which are attached the legs of the lamb. So my friends, if these descriptions of the Passover lambs and the Mishnah and Justin Martyr are accurate, and as Dr. Petrie notes, there is no good reason to doubt them, then on numerous occasions, Jesus himself would have witnessed the crucifixions of thousands of Passover lambs in the Jerusalem temple. This is an aspect of the Passover in his day that is neither mentioned in the Bible nor part of the modern-day Jewish cedar, but which has, I think, the power to shed light on Jesus' conception of his own fate. And how important is that for Jesus as an 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 16-year-old walking into Jerusalem, seeing these lambs, in cruciform, lining the streets. What he must have been thinking about, not only as a 8, 10, 12, 16-year-old, but as a 33-year-old, as he is there on the cross, crucified. My friends, the scourging and crucifixion of our Lord was part of the outward sign of the bloody nature of the Passover holocaust. And more importantly, an outward sign of the greatness of God's love for us. It's Christ's love that transforms suffering into something that is now holy. Remember, sacrifice translates as sacrumfice, to make holy. Sacrifice can now fulfill its deepest meaning to make holy, huh? To make holy. And oh, by the way, when we are made to sacrifice, we enter into all of 
our own excruciations in light of the one sacrifice, mindful that the word excruciation comes from the Latin excruces, which translates from the cross. You see how it all comes together? All right, other details of note as it relates to the crucifixion that could be found in John chapter 19 and verse 5. We read that he came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Purple was the color of vestment that would have been worn by the high priest when offering up the Paschal Lamb. Hmm? In verse 14, we read that it was the day of preparation for the Passover and that it was the sixth hour. Well, the sixth hour was about noon, the time when lambs were being slain in the temple courts for the Passover meal that night. Another anticipatory moment. In verse 23, we read of a seamless tunic. The seamless tunic of Christ recalls the linen vestment worn by the high priest, and like the narrative speaks to it, it was not to be torn. The richness of what was being transformed in Christ, my friends, on the cross is captured once we gather the details of the Passover. All right, now, if the Passover prescription was about the... Oh, I can hear my old Professor Scott Hahn in my ear right now. (laughs) if the Passover prescription was about the kill, spill, and eat your fill, then what is left? Christ has died. His blood has been spilled, and now we must eat. What does Exodus tell us? You must roast the flesh and eat of it to be saved. All of us are familiar with John 6, but what was the context? Passover. Let's be clear, the Eucharist is the new Passover. And what does he say of the Eucharisteros? That's the Greek word for Eucharist. Unless you eat. And again here in John chapter 6, take note of the evolving Greek. Up to and through verse 53, the Greek for eat was estheo, the more common verb for eating. At verse 54, he transitions to trogo, a verb meaning to chew or gnaw. The change of Greek, my friends, marks a change of focus and emphasis from the necessity of faith to the consumption of the Eucharist. And remember, it is just not us consuming the lamb, but the lamb, but the lamb consuming us. Amen? Amen. All right. Lastly, the Passover was meant to be a memorial. We read all throughout the Exodus narrative that the Lord commanded Israel to observe the Passover as a what? Memorial. Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. You shall keep it a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as an ordinance forever. Yet, Passover is more than just a a commemoration of a historical event. For the Israelites, my friends, the Passover cedar marked the renewal of covenant with God. On that day, the day of Passover, The covenant in the mind of the faithful Jew was, we could say, extended into time. And this memorial would be fulfilled and, of course, transformed in the words of Christ when he said, do this in remembrance of me as he was instituting the Eucharist in the upper room. Uh, The word, therefore, remembrance or memory is uh, anamnesis which best translates as a representation or a rememorial or maybe best translated a making present the past we should hit the pause button here 
and reflect on this topic of memory. Memory is the chief faculty of our soul, the most prolific catalyst of the human spirit, a a vast and immeasurable sanctuary as it has been observed. Essentially, my friends, without our memory, we would effectively cease to be ourselves as we know it. You know, I could no longer make a phone call to a loved one. I could no longer be able to make a quick run to the store, or for that matter, call a brother or sister of mine on his or her birthday. In other words, I could no longer be the father, husband, brother, son, uncle, and so on that God has called me to be without my memory. In so many ways, memory is the soul of our relationships and really routes our whole being and interpersonal communion with the larger family of God. Everything we touch, smell, see, and act upon is filtered through this immense womb we call memory. What's more is that memory is not reduced just to individuals, but also to human groups, right? Families, tribes, nations. They all have a collective memory. In the end, the point to be had here is is that human groups don't find their collective wealth and communal identity and, and stocks and bonds per se, but the way in which they remember where they come from. This is why we see, at least here in the United States at a national level, the celebration of such days as Independence Day and Memorial Day. So by celebrating particular events in the past, and certainly this can also include such things as birthdays and anniversaries, we are doing more than just matting a picture on the wall. We are making present the past to gain a deep appreciation and understanding of who we are in the present and where we are going in the future. Think about it. How many of us have been part of a recent celebration where there was more than just remembering going on, but storytelling that was life-giving? Within our circles, we have accumulated and inherited all sorts of customs and lore that stir the heart. Quite simply, we do these things because there is purpose and reason. We are to move beyond this idea that memory is just some random psychological exercise of retrieving data. But in the end, the faculty that tells us who we are. You see, we have traditions because they link us to our ancestors, and in so doing, we have this now ability to carry on this kind of conversation with them. There is a certain dynamism that comes with being able to identify where we come from. So again to better understand who we are and where we are going. All of this is to say, when Christ says, do this in remembrance of me, we are to be reminded that in the sacrifice of the Mass, Christ's saving death is represented, actually made present on the altar to intercede on behalf of men in the presence of the Father. And as he does this, we can then, within the whole scope of the liturgy and the Mass, have that conversation, right? You see, Christ has come as the new Passover, extending himself into our temporal reality, our earthly reality, that our life might now have its proper scope and direction. As John 19 records again, he is the unbroken, 
unblemished lamb whose blood has been spilled on the doorposts of the wooden beams, on the wooden beams that he now hangs upon. Jesus' whole salvific mission is to fulfill chapter 12 and all of the high drama in it. And for that we say, Amen. Brothers and sisters, Exodus 12, as I have already said, is really quintessential to our understanding, just not to the book of Exodus, and for that matter, just not to the whole of the Old Testament, but the Bible itself. I have to believe that when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, explaining to those disciples how he was the fulfillment to Moses, he was talking about himself as the unblemished lamb right? Oh, there are many things that he would have talked about, but I've got to believe that at the heart of that catechesis on the road to Emmaus was at least some of the stuff that we talked about tonight. Amen? Amen. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening the gift to be, able, to be able to reflect into the richness of your word, your word that is living. We pray that we might receive your grace in abundance, that we might enter deeper into the mystery of your word, that we might make that mystery present to all those we encounter and to all those we meet. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.